Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is John, and I'm a member here. Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, <clears throat> grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word for us today. Amen. Thank you, John. If you would, please join me in prayer as we look to God's word. Father, we thank you that you have spoken here in these pages by these words to your people for many, many centuries. Uh, we thank you for the life-changing theology of suffering that we see in these pages and the incredible call that you have given us to rejoice together in, in, the, in the upward life of Jesus that we share in. We pray that you would open our eyes to see these things all the more clearly, even more clearly than you've had us see them before this morning. And more than that, we pray you would equip and establish us together to press on in this upward life. In Jesus' name, amen. How should we respond when the world resists or opposes our message? Uh, we planted Redemption Church about four and a half years ago, and, and for the most part, I have to say, everything has gone really, really well. Uh, we started with a small group of friends. We've been meeting each week to preach the gospel, to sing, to pray, to enjoy fellowship. Relationships have been formed. Leaders have been developed. God just provided us with this space recently. He's been incredibly kind to us. But imagine if sometime soon all of that seemed to change. Imagine if there was some kind of new development in the world and for whatever reason, Christians like us and churches like ours faced tons of opposition. Imagine people picketing outside of our services. Imagine negative publicity, and press. And then imagine finding out that either I or maybe one of our elders was even thrown in prison. How would that change your perspective on the life and ministry of our church? Would you keep showing up every Sunday? Would you keep coming to small group? Or would 
your love for and commitment to the other members of our church start to fade? Would you maybe start to wonder if God was still being so kind to us? He couldn't possibly want us to suffer in that way, could he? This was basically the situation the Philippians were faced with. Paul, who had helped to plant this church, was thrown in prison because of a close bond they shared, which we will get into today. This church sent a man named Epaphroditus to support and to help Paul in his suffering in prison. And when it came time to send Epaphroditus back on his way, Paul sent him more than likely with this letter. Philippians is widely known as one of, if not the most encouraging of Paul's New Testament letters. He clearly had a special bond with this church, but it is also a very instructive letter. In it, he shares this peculiar but powerful theology of suffering. He paints a clear and compelling picture of what our church life should look like, even in the face of opposition. But more than that, he reassures us that the resurrected King Jesus is very much with us in our suffering. We're going to see this is even kind of his thing, earthly suffering. This morning, we're going to look at our passage uh, and kind of all of the book of Philippians from two different angles to sort of see what Paul is after here. And first, in these first 11 verses, I really want us to pay attention to the upward life we share. By far, most of this introduction is just a celebration of Paul's deep spiritual relationship with the members of this church in Philippi. Notice even their deacons and their overseers, elders. Paul is rejoicing in the bond and the fellowship that they share. We're going to get in deeper to verses 1 to 11, but first I want to do some overview work of the entire book because notice I'm using this phrase, right, the upward life, which is not technically in our passage, uh, but I'm convinced at least the idea behind that phrase is central to Paul's argument throughout the entire letter. And so let's take a look at the letter and just kind of see where that's the case and, and why it matters. Throughout this letter, Paul regularly contrasts earthly circumstances down here, which often don't seem very great, with heavenly realities up there. And this contrast really changes the whole equation. Uh, in short, according to Paul, our earthly suffering does not look nearly so bad from a heavenly perspective. This is one of the main unifying ideas of the book. Paul wrote this letter to help this church see earthly suffering from a heavenly perspective. And so we're going to call this the up there, down here dynamic of the book of Philippians. It happens all over the place. He's regularly bouncing back and forth between up there, down here. And this theme is rooted in chapter 2, which I'm convinced, in my view, is the theological foundation of the entire letter. I'm convinced the theology of chapter 2 is basically propping up everything else Paul says here in Philippians. Therefore, understanding chapter 2, and especially verses 4 to 11, is the key to making sense of Philippians. So in particular, in chapter 2, Paul points to Christ as the ultimate cosmic example of humility. 
He basically argues that Jesus, God's son, was equal with God the Father even long before his life on earth, before he was incarnate. God the Son has always existed as God, as the second member of the Trinity for all of eternity. In other words, he didn't have to be born (laughs) on this world. He didn't have to take on human flesh. And frankly, he had pretty great arrangement before he did. But rather than clinging to that heavenly status and protecting his own interests at all costs, Jesus emptied himself of this heavenly status by coming down from heaven, by taking on human flesh, and by obeying God, his Father, even to the point of death, which is about as low as it gets, right? Talking about being buried in the ground. Notice how Paul describes the outcome of this. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. In other words, he's brought him back up, even higher. He says he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, that is, it should be made low. Where? Everywhere. All the knees. In heaven and on earth, and even says under the earth, like way down there. People who are dead and buried. And every tongue, he says, confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father up there. So here's the point. Jesus' earthly suffering down here is the very reason for his heavenly exaltation up there. The reason this God-man was lifted up. The reason he is now the exalted heavenly king of all creation is precisely because he was humble enough to come down here and die for us to begin with. In Paul's mind, this is key, in Paul's mind, that needs to radically change the way that we think about earthly suffering. Rather than seeing suffering in opposition, like his imprisonment, for example, as evidence of failure... No, Paul sees it as a path to heavenly glory, just like it was for Jesus. Which is why this letter, written from prison, is filled with calls to rejoice. Rejoice! Paul sees heavenly glory in earthly suffering, and he wants us to see it that way as well. Now with that in mind, here are a few places we see this up there, down here dynamic throughout Philippians. Next week in chapter one, Paul's gonna debate whether or not he wants to stay alive and keep doing ministry or go and be with Christ to die. And he says it this way. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart from down here and be with Christ up there, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh down here is more necessary on your account. As he famously says, right, to live down here is Christ up there. This is how Paul consistently talks about the Christian life. We've seen it in countless different series. It's almost as if we have all died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That was the book of Colossians. It's almost as if we were all crucified and he is now living through our lives in the flesh. That was Galatians. Same thing. Okay, so we've already seen this theme in in chapter 2. That's where it comes from. Then in chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, For God's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things down here and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him 
up there. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, down here, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, up there, right, that depends on faith, down here. You see? The, the righteous, exalted, formerly crucified Christ, up there, is living through us down here. And this is how we endure our suffering. As Paul says in chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, I press on toward the goal for the prize of this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice God is calling us upward. How? Well, he's calling us upward in Christ by the power of his upward resurrection, by the power of his upward ascension. Church, his upward life, the one that Paul just described to us in chapter 2, is the key to ours. As he famously says in chapter 4, I can do all things down here on earth through him up there in heaven who strengthens me. And so here's the point. Things like rejection, opposition, Suffering and trials are not barriers to the upward life that God is calling us to. They are part of the upward life that God is calling us to. But here, if there's one thing that's clear in verse 1 to 11, it is Paul's love for this church in Philippi. And in large part, I think this is because of the upward life they've shared together in Christ. This upward life is a corporate life that we share within the body of Christ, his church. And clearly Paul has been tremendously blessed to have shared it with these brothers and sisters. It just jumps off the page to us, doesn't it? In verse 3, he thanks God for regularly bringing them to his memory. They were regularly in his prayers with joy, he says, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is a long-standing, intimate friendship that they shared. In verse 7, he says he holds them in his heart, for they are fellow partakers of God's grace with him. This was not just a, a partnership of convenience. They shared in, in the greatest good there could possibly be in the free gift of God's salvation. They partook of this together. In verse 8, he says he yearns for them, down here, with the affections of Christ Jesus, up there. And in verse 9, he says he has been praying all these good things for them. In particular, he wants their love to abound with all knowledge and discernment so they can approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless, filled down here with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ up there. Notice this exalted King Jesus up there in heaven is the source of our upward life down here on earth. Really, it is his upward life. It is his resurrected, ascended, exalted, formerly crucified life that we get to share in. Paul does not just yearn for this church with his affections, but with Christ's affections. He doesn't just pray that they be filled with righteousness of their own, but of Christ's. Paul is praying for Christ's upward life to shape and to fuel and to saturate the life of this church. 
Not just for a while either, but notice until the day of Christ. He mentions this twice in our passage and even more throughout the book. In light of this up-down theme, this day of Christ almost certainly refers to that day when the ascended King Jesus comes back down to earth to establish his kingdom here once and for all. This is that ultimate day when there won't be this discrepancy between what is earthly and what is heavenly. When we won't have to endure suffering down here for the sake of Christ up there because he will dwell down here and he will rule down here like he does today up there. This theme also sheds a bit of light on the maybe unexpected way that Paul talks about the gospel here. Notice he says the Philippians have been partners with him in the gospel from the first day until now. And you might be thinking, well, what does that even mean? I I thought the gospel was the good news that saves people. I I thought it was a message, not so much something that we participate or partner in, is it? And and certainly it is a message, uh, but it is a message from a king about his kingdom. This is what a gospel is in the ancient world. It was a good news pronouncement from a king. And those who believe in this gospel, Paul will tell us later, are actually citizens of this heavenly kingdom. So in that sense, we do participate in the gospel of King Jesus. Uh, First, by trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins, Uh, but also by defending and confirming this good news that he really is king of all, up there and down here. Which means, by the way, that these other earthly rulers like Caesar of Paul's day was not. And this is why Paul regularly found himself in prison. It's because the gospel he proclaimed had profound political implications. It really did. In his mind, Paul was being beaten. Paul was being imprisoned by these earthly rulers down here because he proclaimed the good news that King Jesus rose again to have all authority both down here and up there. We'll see this. Later in chapter 1, verses 29 to 30, when he writes this, For it has been granted to you, Philippians, that for the sake of Christ, up there, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, listen to these words, engaged in the same conflict down here that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Paul was fighting in his mind in a conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of light. Of darkness. We'll see this also at work in chapter 3 when he says this of his earthly opponents. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Listen to this with minds set on what? Earthly things. But our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That upward life is coming back down. So this is the kind of deep spiritual friendship that Paul enjoyed with the members of this church. It's not just that they sort of went way back or or that he kind of helped them out. They kind of helped him out. No, it's that they shared in this upward life by engaging together in a cosmic war. And so have we. And so are we as members of Christ's church and as citizens of this same kingdom today. This is our first takeaway. 
We are engaged in a cosmic war together. And and understanding this is crucial to the spiritual bond we actually share as a church. I've heard it said that soldiers who fight together in war, they enjoy a special kind of bond with one another. I can imagine that's true. There's something profound, I'm sure, about striving side by side for a noble cause against a formidable enemy at great risk of harm and even death. For me, the closest thing I've ever come to fighting in war was um, playing high school football. Um, Football is a violent sport. It really is. And I remember in high school just feeling exhausted. I remember feeling sore late in the game and also filled with adrenaline. And then I have these vivid memories of the guys I played with. Particularly one of them comes to mind. His name was D. Burnett. D. Burnett was a huge linebacker. He looked terrifying. He looked like if you, Ray Lewis, okay? If you don't know who that is, if you're really young, Google Ray Lewis later. But I just remember being in the huddle late in these games, exhausted, looking around this huddle. I see D, and I think, I'm glad that guy's on my team. I remember playing defense with him as a safety. If I ever got an interception or picked up a fumble, all of a sudden, the other team, that something really changed, and everyone wanted to kill me. And I remember thinking, man, here's this huge guy coming towards me, starting to freak out a little bit, and then here comes D. Burnett. Woo! He levels that guy. To this day, if I ever see D. Burnett, I feel that same affection for him, right? This man has leveled people for me. I know it's a long time ago, but I still feel it. The point is this. This is the kind of bond we should share as members of King Jesus Church engaged in King Jesus' mission. When we see each other even out there in the world at the movie theater, the grocery store, we should think, this, this is a fellow soldier with me. We are engaged in a cosmic war together to defend and confirm the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who promised, by the way, that the gates of hell even would not prevail against his church. Even in the words of Christ himself, church, we are at war. Now, what's interesting is that the way we fight this war is is very peculiar. It doesn't look like hand-to-hand combat or even waging a culture war on YouTube. We need to let some people know that. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, our fighting does not really look like fighting at all. It looks a lot more like our love, as Paul says, abounding more and more. It looks like growing in spiritual knowledge and discernment. It looks like living pure and blameless lives. More than that, it looks like clinging to the hope of our king's return, that great day of Christ, and in the meantime, defending and confirming the good news that he is truly reigning over all. That's true. This is not a violent earthly war. It is a cosmic heavenly one, but that does not change the simple fact. We are at war. It has been such a joy for our family to be at war with you guys these last 12 or 13 weeks. Uh, we've really stepped out. We've flown across the world to bring Swara, our adopted daughter, into our family. It has required a lot of our time and attention. Church life has looked very different for us, at, at least for us. But meanwhile, we've experienced your love abounding for us more and more. 
Greg Aulis stepped in to preach 12 sermons, uh, which afforded our family the flexibility we needed to make this transition really w- go well, which, praise God, it has. Uh, Lydia has been incredibly patient navigating the first couple months of her job, often without a boss, <laughs> and she's done a great job. All of you have either brought us meals, helped with the kids, or just encouraged and supported us in some way. This is what it looks like, I'm convinced, to be at war and to share in the upward life of King Jesus. And from the bottom of of our heart, I want to thank you guys. I, I can really relate to exactly Paul's words here. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you have all been partakers with us of grace. Uh, through all kinds of ups and downs these past four and a half years. Many of you understand this idea of being at war. You are living in this way, praise God, but I'm sure some of you also need to hear this as a bit more of a challenge, as in, we are at war here. What we're trying to do here is not about creating a comfy, suburban church experience for religious consumers, so that someday, Lord willing, we can build a bigger, impressive sanctuary in homage to our success. No, this is, this is not that at all. We are at war. In the same way, we should not just serve in ministry when serving is sufficiently comfortable for us. And, and it doesn't infringe on our otherwise well-balanced, minimalist lifestyle. Paul doesn't seem to have one of those. He counted all things as loss compared to this joy of knowing Christ through earthly suffering. Now, let's be wise, right? We, we can certainly overdo it in a way that would not honor God, but the point is this. We are at war, and that may involve making sacrifices from time to time. It may involve doing hard things, knowing that they're hard even. This means we should not leave the church when we feel this kind of subjective sense that we're just not as connected as we used to be. We can't find the right places to fit in. I say this fully in love for the sake of your good, but our church does not exist to satisfy every member's unique preferences and desires for program ministry. We're at war. Just jump in. (laughs) Start fighting with us. Someday we will likely announce, here is a vision to plant a new church here in our community. We want to call all of you to seriously consider and pray about being a part of that. And if and when we do, you're probably going to think, well, wait a minute, why would I do that? I like it here. I'm really enjoying this church. Well, here is our answer to that question. We go because we're at war. When you're at war, you can't necessarily gauge success in terms of comfort and ease. Paul did not think of his ministry in this way. In fact, next week, he's going to convince us and try to persuade us that him being thrown in prison has been incredibly strategic to the advance of the gospel. Clearly, he thought differently than we often do of the church, but we, like him, are engaged in this same cosmic war. And at least in part, it is this mutual service we share in this war that binds us together in the upward life. We're in the trenches together. We are sacrificing together, all to defend and confirm down here that the resurrected Jesus is king of all up there. But next... There is also a danger that threatens this upward life we share. And that is, namely, the temptation to look down. This part is not quite so obvious, but it's there. When Paul says the Philippians are partakers of grace with him, notice how they partake 
in God's grace together. Midway through verse 7, he says, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. How? Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. <laughs> Did you see that? In other words, the grace they partook of together did not always seem pleasant or gracious down here. In a heavenly sense, it was, yes, but here on earth, the grace they partook of together looked like suffering. It looked like imprisonment. To many, it looked like failure, rejection, and persecution by the powers that be. See, on the surface, this is basically a thank you letter. The Philippians heard Paul was in prison. They sent probably their pastor to encourage and support him. Paul is writing to thank them for this encouragement and support in a hard time. But beneath the surface, Paul is calling this church to press on with him, to stand firm in this upward life, even in the face of sometimes violent opposition. I think this gives some insight into why Paul prays for these specific good things in the life of this church. It may be that after his visit from Epaphroditus, Paul was a bit concerned that their love would not abound more and more. He tells them later to do all things without grumbling or disputes. He may have been worried that they would start lacking knowledge and discernment and disapprove of his suffering as if it were not excellent. In chapter 2, sorry, we'll keep going. In other words, he seems worried they may not press on blameless and pure till the day of Christ, that they won't be filled with the righteousness that is in him if, of course, they lose sight of this upward life and start looking down at their challenging earthly circumstances. Paul is thankful for this church, it's true, but more than that, he wants them to see our suffering is a heavenly grace we get to share in. It is not just an earthly failure we should be ashamed of. And this is the claim of our text this morning, I'm convinced. Church, let's share, let's keep sharing in Christ's upward life, even when it gets really hard down here. It's a timely message for us today, as many Christians are wondering what to do now that it is no longer really to our cultural advantage to be a Christian. In light of all the cultural upheaval and uncertainty, many, many Christians are wondering, what, what do we do with this? Right? How, how should we think about this? How do we engage the world? Should we run and hide? Should we fight to keep America Christian? Remember, our first takeaway was this, that we are engaged in a cosmic war. The next takeaway is this, is that at times it may seem like we're losing. It may. One of the challenges in applying Philippians today is that even in light of these new developments, it's just so hard for us to imagine the opposition that Paul faced, isn't it? It is so hard for us to imagine risking prison or death to do something like getting up here and preaching a message like this. It just doesn't really compute for us. But we did get a real taste of earthly trials together back in 2020, right, as a result of the pandemic and all the complications that came as a result. That was a real season of earthly trials that had huge implications for our church. And as your pastor, I have to confess, especially this week studying this passage, I've been convicted by the fact that too often I did not consider that season a chance for us to partake of God's grace together. I didn't. Too often I, I grumbled about the hardship and inconvenience. I worried, what's this going to mean for the church? Is this, gonna, this thing going to work? And so church, let's learn this lesson together from Philippians. 
this lesson that sometimes in this cosmic war, it may seem like we're losing. Someday, things may not look very good. Uh, one thing that the last few years have done, I think, is to open Christians' eyes to that at least possibility. Uh, by God's grace, I hope to pastor for, I don't know, at least another 20-some years. And after the last two or three, I have to say, I think one of the most important things we have to do as pastors is to prepare God's people for suffering. To, to prepare our churches even, possibly, for persecution. Because our future may not be as, as comfy as our past. And so here's the question, how will we respond if it's not? Let's just say someday the government passes a law that requires churches to perform weddings for anyone, regardless of their gender, identity, or sexual orientation. And let's just say pressure keeps mounting and the life of our church will get very, very hard if we don't fall in line and, and either adjust our beliefs on gender, marriage, and sexuality or compromise those beliefs in our practices. If that day comes and we graciously say, no, we, we can't do that and suffer the consequences, how will you respond? When your friends start to chatter that you're going to church with all those conservative bigots. Will your love keep abounding more and more then? Will you keep approving what is excellent with us? Keep living a pure, blameless life even if we suffer for it? Or another scenario, let's just say the conservative political movement in our country continues to grow more and more pragmatic more and more brazen and hostile, and Republicans start to talk more and more as if all the real Christians always vote for them. And let's just say some churches we love and respect today even start to gauge Christian faithfulness in terms of political fidelity to the far right. They start to cancel and condemn us because we're not American, I mean Christian. Enough? If that day comes and we graciously say, no, friends, our, our kingdom is not of this world. And if we suffer the consequences for that, how will you respond? When some of your closest friends start to chatter about going to church with all those liberal compromisers. Will you keep, will your love keep abounding more and more then? Uh, will you keep approving what is excellent with us? And living pure, blameless lives, even if we suffer for it? Both of these scenarios seem, first, in increasingly plausible, but also incredibly hard. And this is basically the point. No matter how hard it gets down here, no matter how much it may seem like we are losing, here's our final takeaway, church. Listen, we're not. That's the final takeaway. We're just not. We're not losing. We can't. Our victory belongs to and depends on this risen Christ Jesus and his upward life. And this is how he won the war against sin and death for us, is it not? He won it by suffering down here, by being lifted up up there. So church, let's keep our eyes fixed on him. 
Let's keep our eyes fixed on his cross. Let's keep sharing in this upward life, and let's keep defending the good news of this king and his gospel because we, together, are partakers in the grace of God, even in our suffering. And we can be certain of this, as Paul was, that he will complete the good work that he has begun in us on that glorious day of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, for this encouragement, for this call to cling to your resurrected son who suffered tremendous and unimaginable hardship for the joy that was set before him. God, would you give us the strength by faith in him to endure whatever hardships would come for the sake of your glory? Would you give us a vision and a heart for suffering that would use suffering to bind us closer together in the upward life and make us more committed to waging this cosmic war that we are participating in, to be defenders and confirmers of your gospel, Lord? Help our love to abound more and more. Give us knowledge and discernment. Help us to live blameless, holy lives filled with the righteousness that only comes through the upward life of your Son. We bring all these things to you in his name. Amen.